This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. All right, teachers, parents, grandparents, we are two weeks and one day from the physical return to school for those children who are going back to in-class learning. Your concerns two weeks out, your thoughts. If you're a teacher, what guidance have you received? We did speak there with the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, and she says in many cases, uh, teachers have not been given uh, any kind of instructions or guidance uh, um, the ventilation systems may not be in place in all schools. Uh, what are your concerns, especially with children 11 and under, uh, ineligible to be vaccinated against COVID-19? I want to hear from you as we continue our discussion. 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. Ryan Imgrund, is an educator in York Region and a biostatistician who's been providing daily COVID-19 data analysis for Ontario and Canada, also an occasional guest here on Fight Back, as well as Dr. Eric Tucker, professor at Osgoode Hall Law School at York University, who has extensive knowledge of Ontario's occupational health and safety system. Dr. Tucker, Ryan Imgrund, welcome to Fight Back. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having me, too. Ryan, I'll begin with you. How risky is the return to in-class learning based on the data? Yeah, it is extremely risky right now. Really, what we're looking at now for a September 2020 for a September 2021 20, return to school is a watered-down plan of the September 2020 return to school. Um, we've got a lot of the things that were in place before are not in place anymore. We don't really have cohorts anymore. We don't have designated school boards. We have cafeterias wide open. We have extracurricular activities going back. And really, we haven't seen the ventilation changes. We haven't seen changes to masks. We haven't seen big, significant changes that will help us, um, you know, fight this the Delta variant, which is really, really hurting Ontario right now. Ryan, I guess the difference between this time last year and this year is that we have widespread full vaccination. So having a watered-down plan, uh, does that not balance out uh, the vaccine situation? If we didn't have the Delta variant, it would. I think the issue right now is we are seeing about 400 cases in unvaccinated per day. Back in August 2020, we were seeing around 150 um, cases in the unvaccinated for every day. So we are seeing more cases in the unvaccinated every day now than we were last year. Well, every everybody was everybody was unvaccinated last August, right? Well, exactly. Yeah. But, but but that's the, um, the number we should be looking at. It's not just simply saying, oh, look, we've got a lot of people vaccinated. That's fair. But we have more cases now in the unvaccinated than we did last mm-hmm. year in the unvaccinated. And that's a very, very troubling thing. So vaccines help, but... They're not going to simply like bring case counts back down to what we saw last year. We're not there. Um, you know, it's a much, much more harmful situation right now than it was last year. Are we seeing the Delta variant uh, contracted in children 11 and under? Yeah. So what we're seeing is um, there's been studies coming out that have looked at household transmission. And what they found is that the like, kids under the age of 12 are very excellent transmitters of this Delta variant. So that whole, you know, um, thing that we said about um, students and younger people not being able to transmit like COVID-19 as effectively, we know teenagers can transmit it more effectively than adults can. And what the more recent research is showing with the like Delta variant is that those like under 12 are able to transmit it even more e- effectively than like teenagers can. Okay, so transmitting it uh, might mean that those kids are asymptomatic. Uh, You know, what I'm hearing from parents and grandparents is that they're concerned that their kids might get really sick with the Delta variant. How likely is that? Do we know? Well, that is something that 
I think we focus a lot of our time on is what happens to kids when they get COVID-19. What we need to look at, though, it's not the impact of kids getting COVID-19. It's the fact that they can spread. And the fact that they are asymptomatic spreaders means that it's very, very tough to actually properly contact race and to get a hold of COVID-19 once it is brought into the home and once it is brought into and out of the schools. Right. Uh, So they would potentially be infecting the unvaccinated people who are eligible to get vaccines. Yes. And we're also seeing, too, that we are seeing uh, in the U.S. now especially, we are seeing vaccine breakthrough cases, especially in homes, when they have the... um, the children that are unvaccinated, bring it back into their home. We are seeing breakthrough cases in homes um, amongst fully vaccinated parents because students there are returning to schools in very unsafe environments. And I think that's the same thing that is happening here in Ontario. Not to dismiss that concern, but when I had Dr. Peter Uni on at this time yesterday, he said that, yes, that is happening, but that 97 percent of the ICU cases of COVID right now are in the unvaccinated. So even if there are breakthrough cases, those individuals are not getting sick or needing to be hospitalized. And that's absolutely the case. But I think one thing that we should look at, too, is around this time last year, we had 25 people in the ICU in August 2020. Now, in August 2021, we are seeing like close to 150. We are seeing um, nearly seven times as many people in the ICU now with around 65% of our overall population being vaccinated. And that's very, very troubling. Let's go to uh, Dr. Tucker to get, uh, Dr. Tucker, your thoughts on uh, the safety of the workplace. And given that you have uh, extensive knowledge in occupational health and safety, uh, what repercussions or or what action can teachers take uh, to ensure that their work environment is safe, the school environment is safe, for them and their students. Right. Well, of course, uh, looking at it from the perspective of occupational health and safety, uh, uh, teachers, like all workers, uh, have a right to a healthy and safe work environment. And there's a general duty on employers to uh, provide workers uh, with all reasonable precautions uh, to protect their health and safety. Uh, The problem, of course, is that that is, especially in a context in which there's uh, uncertainty uh, uh, about how one deals with uh, these issues, uh, making sure that those work, that there are proper precautions in place is is become quite complicated, as your previous uh, guest has indicated. And so teachers often find themselves in a situation uh, where employers uh, following uh, government guidelines have uh, uh, said that, well, yes, your workplace is safe, you have nothing to worry about, uh, and yet, uh, nevertheless, uh, teachers do have uh, uh, reasonable concerns about whether or not those precautions are adequate. Uh, so, uh, and we've heard this a lot from, uh, you know, teachers, I think, uh, uh, who want to be in classrooms are nevertheless very concerned uh, that many of the measures that they would have hoped would be in place are not there yet. So the question, I guess, is, well, what can they do? Uh, we have uh, requirements that there are joint health and safety committees or health and safety representatives, and so they can bring their concerns to those uh, committees, and hopefully uh, that will result in, in employers uh, taking additional precautions. But uh, those systems work better in some places than in others. And so uh, even after that has been done, there are uh, documented cases where uh, uh, the level of, uh, uh, you know, sort of protections is not yet there. Uh, so that leaves teachers with the question of whether or not they can legally refuse uh, to work in an unsafe environment. It, well, it seems that that they are not able to refuse to work based on that Toronto Star report. Uh, the Ontario Labour Ministry rejected all COVID-19 work refusals, 44 in total from staff in the education sector. So it would seem that they uh, are not allowed within this system to refuse to go to work. Yeah, it's a, it's it's uh, it's it's a very sort of uh, disturbing. Uh, on two levels. First of all, uh, the number of work refusals is actually uh, surprisingly small, right, given the 
number of teachers uh, in the province. Yes. And in speaking with teachers, what we uh, consistently hear is that, in general, they are extremely reluctant to exercise their legal right to refuse uh, unsafe work. Uh, even though teachers are unionized, they still uh, have concerns that, although it's unlawful for them to experience retaliation, they do uh, fear concerns, as well as the fact that they really do uh, want to be in, in the classroom. Uh, the way that the Ministry of Labor, though, has responded uh, to these work refusals is quite concerning, uh, because what seems to be happening is that when inspectors are called to attend to a work refusal, they're not applying uh, or requiring employers to take more rigorous measures. They're saying, well, there's nothing to worry about here. You're not being endangered by your conditions. And so uh, we're not going to treat this as a proper work refusal. Just go back to work. Mm -hmm. uh, yet the precautionary principle, which should be applied here, uh, should say that in the face of uncertainty, we should err on the side of imposing a stronger standards. And the sense we've uh, had by, uh, from what has been happening is that that has not been the case, uh, that uh, uh, the Ministry of Labor has generally uh, not been insisting on more stringent standards uh, for the protection of workers. And so when workers refuse, they're being told by the ministry, uh, basically, just go back to work. Wow. Okay, let's go to Tony in West Hill. We're running very quickly out of time. So, Tony, uh, if you could make it brief, that would be great. Very quickly. My, my nephew is like my son, teaches in Scarborough, and all he says is, guarantee us we're not going to get sick, and we'll go back to work. He's got a three-year-old and a seven-month-old baby at home that he's worried about. And aren't this, aren't, isn't the school board opening up themselves to be... Uh, uh, legally sued if they do go to work and somebody gets sick because they're guaranteeing that nobody's going to get sick. That's it. All right. Thank you, Dr. Tucker. Uh, to, to Tony's question, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, uh, uh, I mean, certainly teachers can't sue their school boards. They're covered by our workers' compensation system. So if they get sick, uh, they can uh, file a claim for compensation. By the way, in the province of Ontario, over 27,000 workers have uh, filed and had claims accepted for COVID-related disease. So that gives you an indication of the extent of, uh, workplace, uh, of workplace spreads uh, in the province. And remember, only about 400 workers have refused unsafe work. Over 27,000 have become sick mm. as a result of a workplace exposure. Very interesting. Uh, Ryan, uh, final thoughts to you. Should the schools be reopening to in-class learning given, uh, given the increase in the Delta variant? No, I think we're in a situation now where we're able to reopen schools, but we need to do things right. We need There's things that we can do, um, such as keeping cafeterias closed. They absolutely should not be open. We should not be having extracurriculars that are high contact that are indoors, such as volleyball and also basketball, unless there's a testing program with that. We should ensure that the transportation to schools is much safer. We haven't done any of that. We've got a watered-down plan with more people in the ICU and more cases in the unvaccinated than we had last year. And yet here we are going back into school in a worse starting position than we were last year. I think it's very, very dangerous. And I think what we're headed for, unless we do some sort of a reform to the education system over this next little bit, we're facing a lockdown um, of schools, you know, students learning remotely once again in a much, much faster time than they were last year. Last so, year, we were able to survive up until Christmas yes. before we got to 4,000 cases per day. I don't think it's going to happen now. So revising the plan by the uh, Minister of Education would be a great idea, is what you're saying? Yes, absolutely. And there and there's some you know easy easy steps. And as I said, I think the you know the the easiest one we can do right now is not to have cafeterias be open to students. That's the most troubling thing for me. I would not be sending my child back to school into a school environment where they are socializing with 500 to 600 kids unmasked, not physically distanced in a school cafeteria. That's extremely irresponsible for any school board to allow their cafeterias to be open in the situation we're in 
right now, it will lead to COVID-19 spread. It will lead to another shutdown of our schools here in Ontario. Extremely, extremely irresponsible. We will leave it there with that picture in our minds. Thank you both. Thank you. Ryan Imgrund is an educator in York Region, biostatistician. He provides daily COVID-19 data analysis for Ontario and Canada. Dr. Eric Tucker is a professor at Osgoode Hall Law School at York University. I'm Jane for Libby. Back with you again tomorrow and on the morning Zoom with Sam and Jane. In the meantime, stay with us for more original greatest hits and Bob Comsick's news next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Two weeks from tomorrow, students will physically return to class in Ontario, Toronto Public Schools, as they will across the province. Many Ontario educators are expressing concerns about safety ahead of the physical return to classrooms, especially with COVID-19 case numbers fueled by the highly transmissible Delta variant on the rise. We've learned from a Toronto Star report that teachers have no choice but to return. The Ontario Labour Ministry has rejected all COVID-19 work refusals, 44 in total, from staff working in the education sector. So what rights do teachers and staff have when it comes to protecting their own safety while on the job as the pandemic continues? And what about the unvaccinated students, the 11 and unders, and how they could be affected by the Delta variant? If you're a teacher or a parent or grandparent of young children. Fight Back wants to hear from you this half hour, your thoughts and opinions as we get close to school reopenings. Numbers to call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. We begin our panel discussion with Karen Littlewood, president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. Hi, Karen. Hi, Jane. Nice to meet you on the radio. Yes, you too as well. Now, teachers, if they're vaccinated, what are they worried about in terms of safety and going back to class? Well, I think everybody's worried right now with the rise of Delta and the rise of the numbers in the public. Um, If there's a possibility to have breakthrough cases in people that are double vaccinated, we're hearing lots about booster shots and when they should be administered. But, but it's more so um, just all of the protections that need to be in place in the schools. Our members are go all the way from early childhood education up into the university sector, and we're looking at having everything in place that we need to have. Ventilation, we've had some announcements about HEPA filters being in the classroom. Mm-hmm. We know that they're going to be essential, but are they going to be um, in place in time? Are, is there going to be training involved? Should a HEPA filter be turned up when students are in a classroom and take their masks off to eat? Students getting together just in the classroom to eat all together. I can't do that in a restaurant but I can sit in the classroom with 30-plus kids with masks off. So many concerns. Have teachers been given guidance uh, for this new school year? (laughs) Well, we have the the, um, small document that came out from the ministry. There have been some additions, but there are still so many holes. We have some members who work in the Provincial Schools Authority. They've been given no guidance at all. There are, there are many, many questions. So we know that um, rapid tests are going to be part of the plan if people are not vaccinated for whatever reason. Do the boards have those rapid tests? Do they have access to them? Because what I'm hearing is they don't. I, I don't think the boards have been given the appropriate guidance from the province. The province should be setting the standard and giving that information to boards instead of saying, here you go, you've got a few weeks left, now you figure it out and operationalize this. Boards have to know by the 7th of September who is and isn't vaccinated amongst their employees. That's not much time in order to collect that information. It's essential, but but how are they going to be able to do that in this short period of time? Karen, do you have any indication uh, what percentage of high school teachers in Ontario are fully vaccinated as they begin going back to class? Yeah, we've done a a little bit of of polling and surveying, and it looks like we're probably at about 90%, but, you know, what I'm hearing is the general public needs to be much higher when we're looking at protecting from Delta as well. And the concern is then it's not just adults in the school buildings. 
its children as well. So for people under 12, they're obviously not going to be vaccinated. And even the 12 to 17s in the secondary schools, the numbers aren't high enough for them. So I would say in a building, I would doubt that we'd be at 90% as far as as fully vaccinated. That's what I'm hearing from a lot of parents and grandparents uh, of little ones is that, you know, the high school students, uh, for those responsible parents who've gotten their kids vaccinated, uh, they're going to be okay. But we don't know how the Delta variant is going to manifest in children 11 and under. Right. No, exactly. So, you know, ventilation and vaccinations are only two parts of what needs to be in place as far as protections. We're talking about masks. And I know a lot of parents have gone out to buy KN95 masks for their children. A lot of staff would like to have them as well, but employers aren't providing them. They're not providing them in the medical system. So, you know, we we would like to have the best protection possible, especially when in high-risk situations. Distancing is going to be crucial. The classes are going back at 100%. Um, at least the Toronto School Board said that they're not going to be having uh, assemblies, but other boards are because the government hasn't said that they can't. Cafeterias, like, are we going to have a 1,000 kids together eating in a cafeteria? And what about buses and getting to school? There's talk of cohorts. But there are no cohorts. I've taught high school. I know what happens when the bell rings for lunch. Everybody goes outside and gathers and they just want to be together and they want to see each other. But where are the protections? I know my sister is a high school teacher in the Toronto public system. And she said it was, you know, it was good in the classroom uh, when they were doing uh, the shorter Mm-hmm. Semester, the quadmasters, um, because you had fewer kids in the classroom. But she said, as soon as the bell rings, you have no control over what the kids are going to do. And she would see them outside hugging each other. And this is yes. all pre-vaccination. Yeah. Yeah. Well, kids are social and I don't want to deny them the ability to yeah. be together. They're so eager to get back to extracurricular activities. But if they aren't safe, we can't, we can't wish for things to be safe and then it will happen. A cohorting is really um, a big issue. And keep in mind, too, that those smaller class sizes in the quadmesters were only at the secondary level. That didn't exist anywhere in the province at the elementary level. And it only existed in certain designated boards, too. So I'm from Barrie. Simcoe County, we didn't have that. Our high school classes were at full volume. And, you know, if you look at the stats for the the town of Bradford and what happened there with numbers, they skyrocketed. They were in red for much of last spring. Karen, just one more question before I let you go. Um, With only two weeks left until teachers and students go back to class, what are what are you looking for specifically? What will make your and everybody every other teacher's life easier? Yeah, well, you know, we, we, we need reassurances that the ventilation is going to be done. And from what I've heard, that's not necessarily going to happen just because the time has not been there. Boards have to procure the, the HEPA filters and have them in place and then set out recommendations. Vaccination numbers need to increase. We, we really do need to have better masks especially in high-risk situations. If boards are going to have students singing, that's a high-risk situation. But the distancing and the ability to, to keep a distance from others, all of the medical professionals are saying that's essential. Is that actually going to be in place? We need to look at the numbers now and perhaps change the, the plan a bit in order to allow for that. Thank you for your time, Karen. Yeah, thanks, Jane. We'll talk soon. Karen Littlewood is president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. After the break, uh, we'll bring in more of our experts on this topic to talk about whether teachers can legally refuse to work in the classroom and whether that is actually a viable argument or a viable request with the Delta variant spreading. We will discuss that next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. And that record from 1948 was 38 degrees without the humidity. Five degrees hotter than it will feel this afternoon, which is even hard to believe. I guess that record is not going to go down for a long time. It is Jane for Libby. She's on vacation this week and for part of next. Thank you for joining me. Long-term care has become a federal election issue as NDP leader Jagmeet Singh reiterates an earlier promise to ban the opening of any new for-profit nursing homes. If elected, Singh is promising to implement a plan to take profit out of long-term care homes altogether and create national standards to hold institutions to account. 
It's an issue we have discussed many times on Fight Back, especially during the pandemic, which so far has seen more than 15,200 COVID-related nursing home deaths in this country, nearly 3,800 of those here in Ontario. Jagmeet Singh rightly points out that for-profit facilities had higher infection and death rates during the COVID-19 pandemic than public facilities. But is this a federal issue when provinces have jurisdiction over long-term care? I want to hear from you, especially if you have a loved one in long-term care. Does Jagmeet Singh have the answers? As the third party in the polls, will the New Democrats even have the opportunity to see this through? 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. Joining me first with reaction is Donna Duncan, CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association. Association, which represents for-profit nursing homes. Donna, thank you for being with us. And good to join you today, Jane. Convince Jagmeet Singh otherwise that for-profit for-profit is not the problem in long-term care. Yeah. So, Jane, uh, the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, we represent um, uh, for-profit homes, uh, small independent uh, private homes, nonprofit homes and municipal homes as well in our in our membership. So we've got a very clear line of sight as to what the issues have been on the ground, uh, recognizing that the majority of long-term care homes, especially in the province of Ontario, are private homes. Uh, as we look at what are the issues we need to solve today, uh, coming out of the pandemic and, and indeed going into this fourth wave right now, we know that we need to mobilize to... Uh, to really make sure that we're making the investments that uh, will help us meet the needs of our residents. We have 40,000 people on a wait list for long-term care in Ontario. Uh, and we know from the uh, parliamentary budget officer, um, you know, they, they, they projected that there were 52,000 people in Canada on a wait list. So their numbers don't really work for us. And they're still saying it's going to be $13.7 billion a year to read build long-term care across the country. What, we, what we're what we really focused on is we don't have a lot of time. Population over 80 is going to double in Ontario over the next 13 years. It takes us eight years to, to train a, a, a medical specialist, four years for a nurse. Uh, we are in a crisis situation right now with regard to our staffing. Uh, and where we're seeing um, everybody coming together remarkably, uh, we're seeing, and I actually just got off a call with our nonprofit partners, uh, we are seeing nonprofits, private homes, the large, large uh, publicly traded companies and municipal homes. We're all actually working together to try and fix the problems on the ground. How are we going to recruit staff? How are we going to build staff? How are we going to rebuild the sector, uh, recognizing that the dire state of our economy overall? It, it's going to take all of us being creative, and we need to make sure that as we're reimagining long-term care, we're balancing out what is a home and what is care. And maybe we move away from a cookie-cutter approach to this is a box that is long-term care and start to look at more specialized models of care. And one of our private members is partnered with a hospital in Ottawa where there are 60 hospital beds embedded in their long-term care home. Uh, That's the kind of innovation and partnership, private-public partnerships that we need to see to really make sure that uh, we are using the broader system resources uh, as best we can while trying to build Uh, new for the future, both new buildings, but also that new workforce. Uh, We don't have time to fight. uh, And where we're seeing the leadership, it really is within our sector where we are coming together to build for our aging population and not trying to divide us. We, We just don't have time for division. All right, then. I'm hearing a lot of we need to and we need to look forward and we need to find solutions. Uh, Have there been any resolutions which uh, are now seeing action to improve long-term care since all the deaths of last year? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we're uh, seeing a far more robust medical support in our long-term care homes. So the role of medical directors uh, has been enhanced and we're getting a lot more clarity and training medical support so that we know that we're going to have uh, more doctors on site. Uh, we have innovative partnerships on our infection prevention and control where we have a hub and spoke model in every community of this province where hospitals are supporting more intensive infection prevention and control in our long-term care homes. Uh, in addition, we have uh, innovative training programs uh, where our members, regardless of ownership, have been working with colleges and universities to build out the workforce for uh, PSWs in particular, but also uh, we're waiting for our first nursing cohort uh, where we are actually going to be having our frontline staff trained to teach in the home and creating that, that culture of learning environment. I would say the role of the essential family caregiver and how we can better support them and our, our homes and our members uh, can support the, the role of caregiver. And that's a, been a, a pivotal recommendation, I would say, as, as, as we think about the future. And then uh, finally, again, just really more innovative models. Uh, so we have the hospital uh, home partnership in Ottawa in uh, the Toronto region. We have one of our members who's partnered with three hospitals around psychogeriatric support for those uh, individuals who may be in hospital, that, that alternate level of care, who have uh, highly responsive or aggressive behaviors, who can't go home and need more intensive support than you would get in a traditional long-term care setting. So we are seeing leadership. We're, we're seeing real innovation uh, and uh, also partnering with our pharmacies around medica medication management and enhancing that, how we're using technology for what we call long-term care plus. Uh, and a lot of our members, regardless of ownership, again, but especially our larger members, have done that to partner with hospitals and specialists to make sure that our residents in our long-term care homes have access to even virtual support for, for medical specialists, and we're doing the best we can. So technology has been a game-changer for us. Hospital long-term care home partnerships are a game-changer, game partnerships with our colleges and universities, and these are all new things that have really emerged over the last 18 months. Well, that all sounds like good news. Um, I want to ask you this, Donna, and I'm with Donna Duncan, CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, Jane for Libby here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. And I'll, I'll put the question to you, the Zoomer Radio listener, first. Philosophically, should there be profit in long-term care? Should there be profit for shareholders in long-term care? 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. Donna, what do you say to that question? Well, I would say that in Ontario, uh, no one profits from care. And our, the way the, the funding model works, uh, all of our care money and money for frontline care is reconciled with the government. Uh, and if, if a home doesn't spend all of the money, it gives it back to the government. So, you know, we, you know, the government's uh, past and present have taken uh, great measures to ensure accountability for all care funding uh, in our long-term care homes so that we make sure that those those taxpayer dollars are going directly into frontline care. Uh, we have a lot more work to do. Uh, and what we, we have been seeing now is where uh, our private homes actually have been investing more, especially over the last 18, 18 months. Uh, we are seeing more uh, uh, strategic investments in new roles in, in their organizations. Uh, they all now have, uh, our larger members have uh, full-time medical directors uh, and, and new leaders who've stepped in. They've uh, recruited full-time IPAC and specialists and epidemiologists. So we're, we're seeing a lot more change where the, the larger companies are making new investments uh, and they are supporting our nonprofit and municipal partners as well. So, but how are the how are the owners getting their money? Uh, yeah, I mean so, that has to be that has to be coming either from the residents themselves or from the long or from the ministry. So the uh, you know complicated business models as as we look at uh, how the investments are made uh, relative to to real estate and. Uh, the investments that uh, our members have made in capital uh, and then uh, borrowing money from taxpayers or, or shareholders, so uh, our private companies, 
get shareholders. Shareholders, if people like, like you and me, can buy shares and invest. And then we lend them our money, and then they they provide a return on that, as we would get interest on a loan loan with a bank, uh, or if we put a deposit in the bank, and we get uh, interest on that. So, it, you know that that's the the basic premise of of how their financing works. Uh, but at the end of the day, no one, no one on the care envelope, the funding envelope for frontline care, for nurses, for doctors, for PSWs, uh, profits in, in the province of Ontario at all. Now, I appreciate that you say there's no time we need to get going on this. Jagmeet Singh is putting a 10-year timeline on this on this plan, on this vision, to rid uh, profit from long-term care. So is that, I mean, is that a viable way uh, of going about it to ensure that all of the money goes towards patient care and not to, uh, you know, making sure shareholders uh, see some money, money back from their investments? Yeah, you know, as we look at 10 years from now, 10 years from now, that is when the population of 80 is going to peak. Over the next decade, the, the cost and the demands for long-term care are going to escalate across our country. We are not ready. We do not have a workforce. In our view, the thing that we should be focusing on at a federal level is working and supporting the provinces with a federal-provincial workforce strategy, looking at labor mobility across the country, building a workforce of nurses and doctors and, and others. We need to be uh, looking at our immigration policies so that we can attract new supports in to our workforce. We need to be rebuilding and investing in infrastructure. And uh, we're actually advocating for a seniors transfer instead of a health care transfer or in addition to the health transfer, a seniors transfer to support our seniors and aging population stay in home in our home for as long as possible from that uh, continuum from independence through to end of life care where they need more they need to be in what is today a more traditional long term care uh, space that is where we believe we need to mobilize uh, we have a lot of work to do and that really should be where the focus is uh, today and and we we're certainly feeling the appetite where people in other sectors, our leaders in, in higher education, in our nursing sector, and our, our physicians and the medical associations, we're all mobilizing to fix those problems today. And, and that really is, I think, the most existential issue. If we don't have people to care for our aging population, then, uh, you know, it, it doesn't matter what, what, what the actual buildings look like because we're just not going to meet the needs of our of our of our citizens. Donna, and, we really appreciate your time and your perspective on this important issue to Zoomers. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Jane. Donna Keep Duncan well. is CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association. We continue our discussion now, and I will get to the phones. I know you want to weigh in on this conversation. We go to Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, professor at Ontario Tech University, who specializes in family caregiving and is an adv- advocate for those in long-term care facilities and an occasional guest here on Fight Back. Dr. Vivian, nice to have you with us again. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jane. Uh, should we start with, uh, I know you've been listening along, getting your reaction to what Donna Duncan had to sure. say about the issue of for-profit. Absolutely. You know, not unlike the name of your show, uh, we will, me and Donna will agree on one thing, that this entire sector is in crisis. Where we will vehemently disagree is that this is not the time to fight. And I will tell Donna and I will tell everybody in the for-profit sector who wants to continue ignoring the role of ownership that we won't stop. And we will fight with every breath we have to end this cancerous model on this sector, which we know firsthand led to the worst collective mass casualty event in our long-term care history. So I'm frankly getting a little annoyed with the complete glossing over of the decades worth of evidence against for-profit only made all the more glaring during COVID, where we have multiple evidence certainly at the provincial level, that the for-profit homes had significantly more COVID-19 deaths for every 100 registered beds. You have to discuss the elephant in the room. And pretending it doesn't exist does nothing 
for all of us to move this agenda forward. It's, it's disingenuous at best and it's dangerous at worst. So that's where I'll start. All right. Well, Dr. Vivian, I do want to get your reaction to Jagmeet Singh's proposal as well as Justin Trudeau's sure. proposal on this. Uh, let's go to the phones first. The question I put out there, philosophically, should there be profit in long-term care? Let's go to Marjorie in Kitchener. Marjorie, go ahead. Um, Yes, uh, my husband is in long-term care. He is in a, a for-profit place. He wasn't my number one. The place wasn't my number one choice, but I took it. I had to do it. These people that work at these places are overworked. They're underpaid and they're understaffed. It's not their fault. They try their best and they're bending over backwards to accommodate the, the people that are coming to them, but they are in so many different phases of um, dementia, and my husband has uh-huh. dementia, that it's very difficult for them to keep up. I applaud them. I don't know how they do it. I know that I had to resort to a long-term care because I couldn't do it by myself, but I, I don't know what the solution is other than that I know they're overworked. I know they're underpaid, and they don't have time to do anything because if one person falls, they're busy with that person. If another person is uh, made a mess and has to have it cleaned up, I don't know what the solution is other than that they need more staff working there at a better rate of pay for what they have to do for for us that... Uh, Marjorie, Marjorie, do you see uh, for-profit as being a detriment to your husband's care in the scenario he's in right now? I I would think, yes, that it is. His number one place that I had put down for him to go are my first five choices, which I researched, were not for-profit. The first three places were not for-profit ones. So I really feel that maybe they... Like, I don't know, because I can't go in another building and see how they are behaving at a not-for-profit place as compared to where my husband is. And I know they're trying to do everything possible for each person that's there. And just one final question. uh, Is your husband not in your first choices because there simply wasn't room? No, it was the first choice that came up, and I had you I have, you, you take yeah. them or you go to the bottom yeah. of the list. I see, yeah. Doctor Vivian. Do you have yeah. any uh, thoughts to Marjorie? I do, I, and and that's case case in point of why families have figured this out and they do their research. And unfortunately, there are long wait lists for the municipal homes, certainly, which have the best outcomes, and then the nonprofit after. And the ones that tend to open up are the for-profit because it is irrefutable that the for-profits, we have lots of evidence on this, they hire less staff, they pay their less staff, they have lobbied successfully over the years for less regulations, less are unannounced inspections and weaker fines and penalties. They provide fewer hours of direct care to the residents, which is why there's never enough staff on hand. And not only that, it contributes to a revolving door of staff in these facilities. And another thing that I want to mention that uh, Donna Duncan pointed out, she said we should focus on, and this was rich, we should focus on immigration policies. Why well, I would like her to talk about, in particular, what are they doing about the exploitation of migrant workers and racialized women, often new to Canada, um, who are being exploited through temporary migrant worker companies, uh, temporary agencies like Bookchain and Staffy? We learned all about this by the Toronto Star that showed several exposés about how the height of the first and second wave, we were exploiting migrant workers who are new to Canada and without any healthcare experience, throwing these poor people into these homes during horrifying outbreaks. And then you wonder why not only they got sick, but then that contributes to further resident death because you don't understand IPAC. You don't have the expertise to know how to fight this deadly virus. I mean, give me a break. The evidence is clear. There's a reason why it plays out in reality that the wait list for nonprofits and municipal homes are far longer because people know, people know that the outcomes are better. They have more staff. They pay their staff better. The City of Toronto Municipal Homes, as an example, fundraised over $20 million about two years ago to implement the four-hour minimum care standard on their own. And I want to remind everyone that Premier Ford says he'll give us the four-hour care standard in five years. Mm -hmm. Why haven't the for-profits instituted the care standard? Clearly, the municipal homes have gone above and beyond to do just that. Why haven't they? 
Why? Because it cuts into their shareholders and their CEOs' profits. That's why. Okay, Marjorie, we thank you so much for calling in and and all the best uh, with your husband's care. I wanted to know, what do they recommend? Should I put, he's still on the list for for my number one choice in that. Should I leave him there? Because I don't know. I'm not a fly on a wall. I can't go in and check. I have researched this. Well, it seems to me, Dr. Vivian, that if if there are still options, if Marjorie's husband, she could move him. Yeah. For, for sure, you can move them. Okay, yep. thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Marjorie. Thanks for calling in. Uh, Dr. Vivian, is this, should this be a federal election issue? So I want to no get your reaction uh, to what Jagmeet Singh is proposing. Uh, also, I haven't had a chance to just kind of recap for our audience that Justin Trudeau says a reelected liberal government would give provinces up to $9 billion over the next five years to hike wages and train more workers in Canada's LTC facilities. He also says he would work with the provinces to implement national standards. So his vision versus Jagmeet Singh's vision on yep. this. There's no question. The problem with uh, Justin Trudeau's vision is that it does not recognize ownership, and he is just going to keep funneling money into the for-profit sector. Okay. The, yesterday it was, yesterday the 13th, um, a couple of days ago, Pat Armstrong, the leading long-term care expert in Canada, she put out an op-ed with Linda Silas, who's the president of one of the, the Canadian Nurses Association. And they made it very clear that as a nation, our objective must be eliminating for-profit business from the long-term care sector. I mean, these are women that have been studying this for decades. And their plan, which is not unlike Jagmeet's plan, is to begin with a moratorium of no more new, but new for-profit homes and then gradually phasing them out. Because keep in mind, these homes are on 25 to 30-year licenses. They all expire at different times. The point is, when they start to expire, just don't renew them. If they're known bad actors, and we have evidence, don't renew them. And then start to make the necessary you know, moves right now to prepare for those homes to be either folded into the municipal sector, the public sector, or to be provided by nonprofit deliverers, which we do have. The bottom line is, is that you know, Justin Trudeau's not recognizing the fact that recent polls have been showing that the vast majority, I mean, the, the last polls, 86% of Canadians want long-term care to be provided under the Canada Health Act, not unlike hospital and acute care, and to be operated in the same form of hospitals, meaning public nonprofit delivery. This is how it needs to go. There is a reason why hospitals were protected during COVID and you didn't see the outbreaks like we did in long-term care, because long-term care has become the wild, wild west, and it's not acceptable. We need to fold it back into the public sector where it should have been all along. And it was for a variety of reasons left out of the Canada Health Act. And a lot of that has to do with women outside of the workforce who took on all of that labor, very difficult labor in private households. But then with the second wave of globalization, women started going into the paid workforce, right? So we lost that very, you know, large, unpaid reserve army, so to speak, of reproductive care laborers. And that was never matched by the government. And unfortunately, the privatization out of this sector in order to meet more and more needs of of not only that, but our aging population has resulted in this mess we're in right now. Dr. Vivian, uh, our conversation, this issue, which is so important to so many people, has prompted a lot of phone calls. Let's go back uh, to the lines here. Dennis in Brampton, go ahead. You're on Fight Back. Thanks for taking my call, Jane, and I would echo the doctor's comments regarding uh, municipal homes. My mother-in-law was housed in a, um, a region of Peel Home, uh, Peel Manor, notwithstanding the fact that the building was 100 years old, it's, it's now being rebuilt. She, the care that she got there was excellent. The staff were uh, attentive uh, to her needs. We, we couldn't uh, say more, and in fact, when she passed, uh, the coroner, who was a family doctor, had said, if my mother needed to be anywhere in a long-term care home, this would be it. And I would point out that the region of Peel is subsidizing their municipal homes, I believe there are three of them, to the tune of $24 million a year, uh, because they recognize that these seniors deserve uh, more care than they um, they have been getting in the past. Well, thank you for bringing uh, that contrasting experience uh, to what Marjorie was telling us about for-profit uh, versus municipal. It's it's great to hear your story. You're welcome. Thank you, Dennis. Let's go to Sita in Mississauga. Sita, go ahead. Hi, ladies. Um, Hi. Qu- these questions was for Donna. Donna? Duncan? Yeah, she's left us now, but uh, maybe yes, you can... Could- <laughs> sure. Um, 
of course, the, these homes are there for a reason. They're there making profits. So why are they there if it's not a business? It's a business. They're making money. Mm-hmm. Well, and so that's what that was my question. Philosophically, should there be profit? Should money be made in long-term care? No, right. definitely not. People are going there for a reason to get better or, or what uh, to to live a long, healthy life to the end. You know what I mean? Than to for these guys to be making profit. Look how many seniors do we lose because of yeah. their. They cut back. They cut back. They didn't have full full staff before COVID. So what makes a difference now? Because people are looking into it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Thank you, Sita. Let's go to Pat in Toronto. Go ahead, Pat. The, the question that nobody is answering is where's the money going to come from? How will people feel when the tax rates go up to 60 or 70 percent? I mean, everybody thinks that somebody else is going to pay. This is the sad, sad, sad part. I mean, uh, you know, the one thing Kathleen Wynne did was to try and get more CPP uh, money put aside so that the government had an access to money, because often families take the money out of the hands of of the old people so that they're forced to be paid, you know, basically by government. Mm -hmm. We can't afford all of this. There are going to be so many people when the rest of us get to that age. We've got to find a way to make the payment come from the individuals by saving during their lifetime. Pat, thank you for your comments. And and the final comment to you, Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, um, moving forward, the best way forward, whether Jagmeet Singh has the vision, uh, you know, where do we go from here? I mean, listen, the, the, the issue about money, and I'm really going to draw on that gentleman's comment, because one thing that I have suggested that, that can be done, building off what he said, was that, you know, there's other countries that have been using long-term care insurance schemes, right? So not unlike, the, you know, that we could fold into the Canada Pension Plan, a Quebec Pension Plan, and it would be an add-on, not a replacement for current provincial funding, but that could add a, you know, a standard stream of money in perpetuity. So certainly it's going to cost money, but for me, and for, I think, the majority of Canadians, because we also, there was a poll that also showed the Canadians will pay whatever it takes to actually deal with this, because people were horrified by what they saw. And, and generally, what I find, the, the uh, you know, counter, new line of defense from the for-profits is, well, it's going to be too expensive. We can't possibly deal with these changes. And it's like, listen, of course, you know, these people will try to tackle this in terms of dollars and cents, because for them, this is fundamentally a profit-making equation. But you cannot ascribe a monetary value to human life. It's just anti-Canadian. We're going to find the money. We have the money. We pay for it anyway. And frankly, the studies show that there is no actual cost savings by bringing in the private sector. They actually cost more and they actually spend more. Municipal homes do it so much better and for less money. So we need to start listening to the evidence, which is not only more economically, financially responsible, but it is the ethically responsible way forward, period. Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, as always, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Dr. Vivian is a professor at Ontario Tech University. She specializes in family caregiving and, as you've heard so passionately, an advocate for those in long-term care facilities. It's Jane for Libby. This is Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. And still to come, is it possible to return to school with the contagious Delta variant in our midst and children 11 and under unvaccinated? We will discuss this with a panel of experts next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.